Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, really lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for your welcome. Um, I, d I know when you're a member of a local fellowship week in, week out, you may lose sight of how good you have it. But uh, I just wanted to tell you how much I've loved just the last 24 hours of being around Sunbridge. It's been great. So thank you, first of all, uh, for hosting Keswick in Bradford. Thank you for disrupting your normal teaching programme by weaving this in this morning. That's really generous of you. Uh, thank you so much to this incredible band. They, they are amazing, and I've loved being led in sung worship by them. Thank you. Simon's leading is, is terrific. <laughs> I doubt, actually, I'm the best speaker even in this room, but it's very generous of you to even suggest that, Simon. Thank you very much. Uh, and just in case um, you missed who I am, it's not really important who I am, but my name's Derek Burnside. Uh, I've recently moved house after 31 years in Exeter. Last month, I moved up to Capenray Hall in Lancashire without my wife. She has professional responsibilities, which means she can't join me till the summer. So I'm living a bachelor existence uh, in a house on the Capenray grounds. And I'm going to take over as the principal of Capenray, filling the small but huge shoes of, of Rob Whitaker, who I know is greatly known and loved here. And Rob sends his love and greetings to you all. Um, so please pray for Rob as he draws to a close of his time as principal. He finishes uh, in June, and I would really cover your prayers as I, as I take over that pretty daunting role. But thank you again for having me this morning. It's great to be here. Um, yes, fantastic. Does anyone recognise that picture? Does anyone recognise that? It's an album cover. Sir, what's the album? You're quite right. It's, it's Rattle and Hum, spoken like a true middle-aged gent, like... Uh, <laughs> Uh, like myself. You two are a band, if you don't know them, and, um, and this is one of their album covers. And uh, uh, anyone seen you two live? Yeah? Anyone seen you two live more than once? Twice? Three times, me. Three times. Not that I'm boasting. Three times. Uh, I love you two. And um, if, if you know this band, you might know that at the end of their sets, I don't know if they still do this, but at the end of their sets, they sang a song called 40, and it's uh, based on Psalm 40. Some of the members of U2 are professing Christians, and uh, they always finish their set with, with this psalm. And uh, the psalmist says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. Uh, in, in Bradford, Keswick, over, these, uh, over last night and into Monday and Tuesday, we're thinking about the stupendous, glorious reality of what it is to be in Christ. We're thinking that one of the most common descriptions of what it is to be a Christian in the New Testament is that we are in him. And I was saying last night, and you might disagree with me, I think we find that a harder concept to get our heads around than the, the equal truth that Christ is in us. We know that Jesus lives in us by his Holy Spirit, but the scriptures are really clear. It's not just that he's in us. We are in him. And uh, over these next couple of days, last night and Monday, Tuesday, today, we're just going to be thinking a little bit more about what it means to be in Christ. And I'm afraid you've copped one of these talks here at Sunbridge on this Sunday morning. Um, well, that, the first couple of verses of that psalm reflect that reality, don't they? Uh, the psalmist says he's had a location change. So he was in the slimy pit, and he was in the mud and the mire, and God has changed his location. He's taken him out of the slimy pit, 
and he set his feet on a rock and given him a firm place to stand. And that's the same idea with different language that Paul uses in the New Testament. He says, I was in Adam, I was in death and destruction and dislocation and sin, and God has relocated me. I've moved, and I've moved from being in Adam to being in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're thinking about over these uh, few days, just what it means to be in the Lord Jesus. If you're like me, I don't think about that enough. I think about Christ in me, I don't think enough about me in Christ. And just over the last few months, I found this a really useful and helpful thing to be thinking about. John MacArthur, um, sorry, let's just go back to Psalm uh, 40. This should be our response from that location change. This is our response. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. You see what the psalmist says the, the natural response should be to being in the Lord Jesus Christ, out of the mud and onto the rock, out of Adam and into Jesus. Uh, the response should be, he's put a new song in my mouth. He's put a hymn of praise to my God. And I think the implication is, through those praises, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. If, if we get what it is to be in Christ, it will result in praise, which is why what we've done already this morning has been so fantastic. And it will result in evangelism. As, as people see our joy and our confidence and our hope, our security that we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, as they see us praising because of that, they're, they're going to put their faith, put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist says. So John MacArthur, commenting on that psalm, says this, the more we sing that song, and the louder we sing it, the more people will hear it. And those who are still in the pit, still stuck in the miry clay, will see how we were lifted out by God's love and see hope for themselves. Be filled with praise every day, he says, because God not only is worthy of our praise, but also may use your praise to draw people to Christ. Your song may lead them to open their hearts to the Saviour so that they might see him perform his great rescue in their lives as well. As I've, as I've got a little bit tighter a grip on what it means to be in Christ, I think I've been praising more. Not just on Sundays, brilliant as this is, when we're singing corporately together, but I think I've, I've just been praising more in my spirit, praising more in my demeanour, just, just praising more... In the, in the everyday circumstances of life, some of which, as you well know, can be pretty grim. But the security of being in Christ leads to praise. And praise gets noticed by those who are still in the clay. This is just such a, a great thing to be thinking about. Does anyone recognise that face? Does anyone know who that is? I'll be very impressed if anyone knows. This would be super brownie points. This is a guy with a very daunting name. If you know any theology, this is one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Uh, this was a Swiss theologian called Karl Barth, and, uh, and his church dogmatics is one of the great theological tomes of the 20th century. Um, don't you love his face? I know it's quite a small picture, and he's late in life. Don't you love that face? Doesn't that look a joyous face? Barth once, once said this, the theologian who has no joy in his work is not a theologian at all. Sulky faces, morose thoughts, and boring ways of speaking are intolerable in this science. Isn't that great? I love that idea that theology is a science. But if you're a real theologian, if you're a Christian theologian, no sulking, Bart says. 
Uh, we're in Christ, and that's going to be a source of, of joy. Um, did you hear last year the story of Archbishop Justin Welby's birth? It was all over the media. Did, did, you, did you hear that? Just in case you didn't, here's the story. Um, his mum is, is, she's still alive, old lady now, she's called Jane. And as a young woman, she was a troubled woman. Uh, she looked fantastic on the outside, early 20s, beautiful, as you can see, flying really high. She was Churchill's uh, personal secretary in his second stint as prime minister in the 1950s. Um, she, uh, she seemed to have everything going for her, just flying in really high circles. But she was a mess inside. She was a mess. She was an alcoholic. She was a functioning alcoholic. And she married an alcoholic. She eloped with an alcoholic, a guy called Gavin Welby. What do you think the worst job for an alcoholic will be? I guess it's publican. Second worst job for an alcoholic is probably whiskey salesman. And that was Gavin Welby's job. He was a whiskey salesman. And they, so they planned to elope together because Jane knew that her mum and dad would never approve of this match. Both of them just reinforcing this addiction in one another. She thinks, she can't quite remember, but she thinks either the night before they eloped or two nights before they eloped, there was a party at work. She got blind drunk and she slept with a co-worker that night. And then two days later, a day later, she eloped. Uh, she found herself pregnant. She, she assumed that Gavin was the father of her child. They had the baby. Um, raised it as a, as a couple initially. Uh, the marriage collapsed through the pressures of, of, their, of their lifestyle and their addictions. And she came home from America alone, a single mum with this child. And she became a Christian, and she, is a, she became and continues to be a recovering alcoholic. She raised the baby who is Justin Welby. And last year, only last year, they discovered that actually Gavin Welby is not Justin's dad at all. It's this co-worker that Jane slept with at that party. And that came out in the papers last year. Isn't that a remarkable origin story for the most senior clergyman in this country, don't you think? Isn't that a remarkable origin story? What would that do to you if in your, uh, what is he, early 50s? If in your early 50s, mid 50s, you discovered that the man you'd always thought was your dad hadn't actually been your dad? What, what impact do you think that might have on you? If, if you discovered that. Here's what Welby said when that news broke last year. He said, I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics. And my identity in him never changes. Although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, Gavin Welby never recovered from his alcoholism and died in the 1970s. Even though there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, this is a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty and near despair in several lives. Isn't that great? But you see what he says about his identity? He's, he's had a complete turnaround in his, in his genetic understanding of who he is. And he says this, I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics. And my identity in him never changes. I'm, I'm getting more, more and more convinced that just a great grip on who we are in Christ... Is, is life transforming. We, we, that's not rocket science, we know that, but to clearly understand our identity in Christ, the glorious reality of being in him, is amazing. So this is what we're doing over these, last, uh, these, these few days together. Last night here, and again, thank you for hosting, we were thinking about the fact that in Christ we are unshakably safe. 
We've had this location shift from being in Adam to being in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Romans 8, nothing in all creation is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. We are unshakably safe. This morning we're thinking about the fact that we are immeasurably loved for these, these next few minutes. Uh, tonight, I put this in brackets because you have a service here tonight, so you're not invited tonight to another church. Support your own church. That would be wonderful. But at the church on the way, we'll be thinking about tonight the fact that in Christ we're fully equipped. Tomorrow night here, in Christ we're utterly transformed. Tuesday night here, in Christ we're united as one. I could have picked 20, 25 topics on this. Uh, incredible overall subject, but went for, went for these five. So if any of these you think will be useful for you, or helpful, please do join us. But this morning we're thinking about the one that's underlined. In Christ we are immeasurably loved. Here's our kind of anchor verse for this little series. You won't be surprised. It's Romans 8, 38-39. Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are in Christ which means this morning, as the songs and the leading and the prayers have so beautifully reflected, thank you guys and girls, we are immeasurably, immeasurably loved. I want to say just three quick things about that this morning before we finish. Here's the first one. The fact that you and I are in Christ at all is evidence of God's immense love for us. If you're a Christian, you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in you by his spirit, you are in him. And the fact that's true at all is evidence of God's incredible love for us. Uh, God loved us before we were in Christ. So do you remember the story in Mark 10 of the rich young ruler? Uh, Jesus gives him this choice to follow him or not follow him. And the, this young guy chooses not to. He's wealthy. He can't put following Jesus above his riches. And he walks off. And do you remember the little note in Mark's gospel? Jesus looked at him and loved him. A guy who wasn't in Christ. He looked at him and loved him. Romans 5.8, Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The fact we're in Christ at all uh, is a huge evidence of God's remarkable love for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The love came before the sacrifice of the Son. Jesus died so that we could come into him because he already loved us. And just, just one more, just in case we need conviction of that, I'll show you in a minute. Here's, here's Bart again. Um, Bart was at the University of Chicago during a lecture tour of the United States in 1962. And by this stage, he was uh, an immensely respected theologian, uh, creating this incredible body of work that was transforming reformed theological thought around the world. And he'd done this big lecture, and he was having a Q&A time, and a student asked Bart if he could summarize his whole life's work in theology in one sentence. You may know this story. I didn't use it for years because I thought it was apocryphal, but I've, I've discovered online that it, it did actually happen. So the student says to him, Professor Bart, could you summarise your whole life's work in theology in one sentence? Do you know the answer? He said this. Yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned on my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
Isn't that great? That's the summary of, of, of this great thinking. Not that we should dismiss the body of work. It's incredible. But that's his summary. Jesus loves me. Loves me before I was in him. That's how immeasurably he loves me. Lo loves me when I was still in the miry clay. Still in the mud. He loves me. He just loves me. And, and it might just be that for some of us, we just need to be reminded of that this morning. But here's... I guess the heart of what I want to, us to think about this morning. If the Son is loved by the Father, and if we are in the Son, we are loved indeed. That, this is the real thing I'd, I'd love us just to dwell a little bit on this morning. And I don't think this is going to be the kind of sermon that gives you three things to feel guilty about and four more to go away and do. Okay? I, I think this is just the kind of talk in which we bask in the reality of God's love for us. And I think we need to do that regularly, because if you're like me, there are voices in my head from all kinds of sources that tell me often that's not the case. So let's just remind ourselves. If we're in Christ, the way the Father loves the Son is the way the Father loves us. That, that, that follows, doesn't it? If we're in the Lord Jesus and the Father loves the Son, the way the Father loves the Son is the way the Father loves us. So just for a couple of moments, can we just think about the way that the Father loves the Son? Uh, if, if you wanted to kind of think about this a little bit more fully, um, this, this book might be helpful. It's a little book by a guy called Rory Shiner. It's very short and accessible. He's an Australian pastor, and it's called One Forever, just thinking about what it is to be in Christ. And I found this really helpful. And Shiner has this lovely illustration. We used it last night. He says, if you want to fly to Australia... What relationship do you have to have to the plane? If you were here last night, you heard this. What relationship do you have to have to the plane? Um, does it help if you admire the plane's authority? Does it help if you, if you submit yourself to, to the plane's experience in the whole flying to Australia thing? Would following the plane get you to Australia? Uh, if you want to get to Australia, the relationship you need to have with the plane is you need to be in the plane. Because where the plane goes, that's where you go. And Shiner's point is this, which I think is brilliant. According to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with Jesus, whatever is true of him is true of us. So where Jesus goes, we go, because we're in him. So he died, we died. He is raised, we are, we are and will be raised. He's vindicated, we are vindicated. And Shiner says, he is loved, we are loved, and so on all because we are in him. So how does the father love the son? How does that work? Well, he does love the son. Matthew 3.17, baptism of Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's such an important idea that we find it twice in Matthew's gospel. On the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the same words are uttered. And if you remember the context of that, it's almost like the father interrupts Peter. Peter is wittering on about building shelters, for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And, and it's almost as if the Father interrupts, the, interrupts Peter's wittering to remind the disciples of this incredible core truth. This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. So listen to him. The Father loves the Son. And that's such a significant experience for Peter that he, he refers to it again. Do you remember in his second letter, Peter refers to that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. 2 Peter 1 verse 17. He received, Jesus received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory 
saying, this is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. Uh, This is is a core concept of the father's relationship with the son. Uh, in, in, In Christ, we experience the love of the father, the delight, the rejoicing, the pleasure of the Father. That's what he experiences uh, in his relationship with Jesus, and we're in Christ. So, so we have uh, that same love. It's just remarkable truth. Uh, Jesus makes it really clear, doesn't he? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Uh, John 5.20, the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he himself is, is doing. So God the Father loves the Son with this kind of delight and pleasure. He is well pleased with him. The father's soul delights in the son. And when he looks at the son, he enjoys and he admires and he cherishes and he prizes everything he sees. And we are in Jesus. So we are recipients of all that loving and cherishing and delight. Uh, In Christ, we really are immeasurably loved. Uh, John Piper Sorry, it puts it like this. He says, The essence of righteousness is to be moved by perfect delight in what is perfectly glorious. The essence of righteousness is to be moved by perfect delight in what is perfectly glorious. So let's think about the way that the Father is moved by perfect delight in the lovely glory of the Son. And then let's just reflect for a minute that we are in Christ. We are clothed with his beautiful righteousness. So we are the recipients of that same incredible delight. Now, I think a right response to that at this moment is this. That's not fair. Feel that? That's just undeserved. We, we know how grotty we remain inside. We, we know the sin that we're carrying. We, we'll know this morning all the ways that we have fallen short of God's glory in these last six days. We will know it so well. Uh, But the reality of the gospel, of course, is that we are saved by the forgiving, purifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've put him on like a new garment and taken off all that old stuff. And our positional sanctification, as the theologians call it, the holiness that we enjoy now is because we are in the Lord Jesus. The delight the Father showers upon him, the Father showers upon us as, as well. Uh, I just wanted to uh, make that point just really clearly, just in case there are some of us who just need to be reminded of it this morning. Uh, Paul says, doesn't he, Ephesians 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And I have to be reminded of that time and time and time again. There are always voices in my life that will tell me that, that God is, is displeased with me, or that my performance somehow lessens his love for me. And it's not true. I am unshakably safe and immeasurably loved because I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. But slipping away from that mindset is a constant danger for Christians. It's what Galatians is all about, isn't it? The Galatian church had been saved by grace, saved by faith in the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they started to slip back to a works righteousness, thinking that they they kept God's pleasure and favour by the things they did, 
by whether or not they were circumcised or whether or not they were keeping the Sabbath properly or whether or not they were eating the right stuff or whether or not they were fulfilling the Jewish ceremonial obligations. And Paul lays into them, doesn't he, and says, what you've gone for is no gospel at all. And I, I love, I find it fascinating in Galatians, the way that as they've slipped away from this doctrine of grace, the joy of being in Christ and loved by God on the basis of Christ's work, not their work, as they've slipped from that, their relationships are slipping too. Their joy is slipping. They used to love Paul and now they're suspect of Paul. Uh, that, that he says, you, it looks like his eyesight was fading, doesn't it? At the end of the letter he says, you would have ripped your eye out and given it to me. And where's your love now? If, if we start to lose the sense that God loves us, we start to lose love for others. Rob Whittaker often says, doesn't he, hurt people hurt people. And the equal truth, of course, is loved people love people. If, if we have got the, 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 a grip on the lovely core truth that we are immeasurably loved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be people of love. I had a lovely illustration of this um, a few years ago, from Nigel Lee. Some of you might remember Nigel. He, he's passed away now, but he was very involved in UCCF and student work. He was my boss for a while. And I heard him say this once. He said, Ima imagine this scenario. Imagine there's a penniless student. I suspect we have some penniless students with us this morning. Imagine you're a penniless student, and you're just eking out your existence in your hall of residence, and, and you're eating pot noodle, and, uh, and you wouldn't do that because they're too expensive, aren't you? You're eating noodles all day and, and you're just about surviving. And one day through the post comes uh, a jiffy bag from your rich uncle. And in the jiffy bag is a car key for a BMW. And there's a note with it that says, little gift for you, it's parked outside. And you, you look out, this impoverished student looks out his, his, his dorm window and parked outside is this beautiful 8 Series brand new BMW. And he can't believe it. So he goes down, opens it with his key, sits inside it, that lovely new car smell, smells of leather. It's got every mod con you could imagine. It's just this beautiful thing. It's so lovely he starts living in it because it's nicer than his room. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's tooling around town in it and just, just having a, a great time. And his friends are saying, where did you get that? And I've got this really generous uncle. Wow, what a great guy. And after a few weeks of this, um, our student is sitting in his room looking at this car key and he starts to feel a little bit inadequate. Starts to feel that it's not quite right. That he's just been the recipient of this great gift of love and grace. So he goes to his drawer, opens his drawer, and he roots around and there's some dusty polo mints and, you know, a couple of expired biros. And he finds 23 pence in loose change. And he finds the jiffy bag that the key had come in originally. And he puts the 23p in the jiffy bag. And he writes this little note to his uncle. He says, dear uncle first installment of the payment <laughs> puts the card in the bag sends it off what would that do to him what would that do to his relationship with his uncle do you think i think what it does for him is the car stops being a joy and it starts being a burden instead of something just to enjoy and celebrate and rejoice in suddenly it becomes something he's got to pay off it becomes a, a guilt thing a duty thing what does it do to his relationship with his uncle uh, he had this incredible, joyous friendship with his uncle uh, that had just been enhanced by this great big gift. And suddenly, I'm guessing he's going to start avoiding his uncle. He's going to start being a little bit resentful about his uncle. He's going to start feeling that he can never pay the debt he's, he owes his uncle. He's never going to pay this car off. And of course, 
it was never a debt to play in the first place. It was a gift. It was a gift. If we lose our grip on the fact that in Jesus Christ, we are immeasurably loved, that in Christ, the love of the Father for the Son is the love that we now have lavished upon us, it will do something to our souls, it will do something to our relationship with God, it will do something to our relationship with others. We'll start becoming anxious, slightly uh, low-level, bitter, uh, duty-driven, miserable people. And we will upset Karl Barth, who tells us we shouldn't be sulky. So for no other reason than that, uh, let's not do it. Um, you, did, did you ever see your parents do this? Did you ever see your parents snuggle? I don't know if, if your parents had the kind of relationship. Uh, I know that there'll be all kinds of parental stories in this room. Some of us may never have known our parents. Some of us certainly wouldn't have known two parents who loved each other and stayed together all their lives. But for those of us who, who had the blessing of parents who, who stayed together, did you ever see your parents do this? My, my parents are both gone now. Um, and they weren't, it wasn't the happiest marriage and they weren't the most physically expressive couple in the world. But um, occasionally, I would see my parents having a little snuggle. I remember once my mum had had open heart surgery and she'd come home from the hospital absolutely exhausted and she'd, she'd gone up to bed and she was lying in, in she'd gone up for a sleep and I'd, I was desperate to see her. I came home from school and I just wanted to see her. She'd been in hospital for about a week and I ran upstairs into the bedroom and my dad was, my mum was under the covers and my dad was lying on the covers next to her with her arm around her and he said to me, not, not now, son, give us a few minutes. And, and my response at that point wasn't resentment, it was just, abs- I can remember it was a kind of feeling of real peace. Because I, I knew that um, I was the beneficiary of their love. The love they had for each other was what had created me. That's what had spilled over into my life. And, and that was a lovely moment. It wasn't a moment of resentment or insecurity. It was like, if, if their love for each other is strong, their love for me will be strong. And we have a glimmer of that magnified a million times in the fact that we're in Jesus. The love of the Father for the Son is the love that we have been welcomed into in the Trinity. So let's just enjoy it. I have one more thing to say this morning and then I'm going to sit down. To be in Christ is to be immeasurably loved. We said um, the fact we're in Christ at all is evidence of how much God loves us. Uh, The fact that we're in Christ means that we're loved in the same way the Father loves the Son. Third and last thing is this. To be in Christ is to be immeasurably loved, and so it is to love immeasurably. You, you will know this. Paul's uh, probably favourite image for church is that we're body. Jesus as head and us as body parts. So when we come into Christ, we come into unity, union with each other, inevitably. I think we have to fight for this reality in a post-enlightenment, highly individualistic culture. Which is why the sense of community, you may not know this, but why the sense of community that you exude as a fellowship is just so fantastic. If we're not, th- if we're not careful, and this is an issue I think we have with some of our students at Cape and Ray, they think of being a Christian as being a piece of personal private therapy for themselves rather than being a body experience. And we need to teach that in, into their lives in this individ- individualistic age. But one of Paul's favourite images for church is body and, and body parts work together. Jesus says, uh, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. 
Part of the evidence that we are in Christ will be the way we love our fellow body parts, will be the way that we love our brothers and our sisters. It's just part of what it is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, sometimes the body goes wrong, doesn't it? I, I think this is uh, Jeff Lucas I stole this from. But he was picturing the things that can go wrong in union with a church and, and developing this metaphor of the body. He says, amputation is when members cut themselves off from a commitment to use their gifts. Elephantitis, do you remember when a body part swells uh, out of its normal size? That's when one ministry grows to a size far greater than it should be. Atrophy, when a body part just starts to harden and the blood flow stops, is when members think attending a service is all there is to the Christian life. Fractures are when members fall out with one another and the pain is felt by the whole body. Arthritis is the grinding of bone on bone and it hurts. In a healthy body, bone doesn't grind on bone but on a seating of gristle. I think that's called cartilage. Somebody will correct me afterwards. And the name of that gristle in the body of Christ is love. Is love. Uh, part of the evidence that we are genuinely in Christ and immeasurably loved is that we will in turn love. We will in turn love. So here's Paul again. And we'll close with this. Ephesians 4, 1 to 5. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and who is through all and who is in all. In Christ, we are immeasurably loved. Let me pray for us. Just give a moment in case, uh, just give ourselves a moment for the, the Spirit, just to impress upon us anything he would particularly like us to take away from his breathed out word. We said last night that our emotions are not always the best guide to spiritual reality. If we're, if we're Christians, whether we feel God is close to us or not is actually irrelevant. I know it's important, but it's actually irrelevant. Because the objective reality is we could not be closer to God because we are in Christ and he is in us. And so, Father this morning I'd love to thank you for my brothers and sisters and I'd like to pray particularly for any who are drifting from a sense of your closeness who are drifting from a sense of their security in the Lord Jesus Christ who are drifting from a sense that, that they are immeasurably loved because they are in the Son who not only gave his life for them because he loved them so much but is also loved so wonderfully by you and Father, we pray that this love would have tangible, practical effects in our lives. We pray that we'd become people of increasing confidence, of increasing joy, of increasing hope, of increasing praise. We pray that sulkiness and resentment would be less and less distinctives of who we are. And we pray that the watching world would see our joy. They would see our love. 
they would see our unity and they would say, look, these are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.